Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, joining you from New York City, and we are joined by our uh, old oldest friends here on this podcast, not by age, of course. I'm, I'll leave that to David Sanger. David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. Hey there. Um, and Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute, who is scooting across America in probably a fabulous uh, sports car of some sort. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And Rosa Brooks uh, settled in in Alexandria, Virginia. Rosa, of course, of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. So I thought I would do something that nobody's doing on the news right now. Um, and that's talk a little bit about foreign policy and national security. Uh, they've totally been lost in this election campaign. Um, I tweeted out over the weekend that if you know somebody who's in the foreign policy line of work, give them a hug. Tell them that they should you know, uh, not feel unwanted that will be cared about again. Um, but I thought the window for doing this might be, since uh, David's uh, here for one of his periodic visits, to pick up on several stories that David has been involved in. Um, and so perhaps uh, the first of those, which has an overlap with the election, um, is a story about um, how um, Mike Pompeo's you know, use of of, of some of his resources in the State Department uh, echoed some of what we've criticized in authoritarian regimes for a while. Uh, and then we'll move on to North Korea and a few other places, but, uh, and cyber perhaps. But uh, David, tell, tell us a little bit about what your story said. Well, the story was written because uh, last week we saw the president kind of jump the shark on uh, in two specific areas. He basically ordered Bill Barr to deliver indictments of Barack Obama, Joe Biden, maybe throw in Hillary Clinton, anybody else he could sort of think of, between now and November 11th. And he said that he was sort of disappointed in Barr after he was told that Barr has quietly been um, telling everybody that the John Durham report, that's the report being done by the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, about whether or not there was a conspiracy to invent the Russia hoax, that there wouldn't be any indictments out of that uh, until after the election, if then. And on radio, uh, the president said that was a shame because it was immediately clear to him that there was all sorts of criminal activity and you could just do the indictments today. So and the second thing he said was he was really disappointed in his other great loyalist, Mike Pompeo, because he hadn't released all those Hillary Clinton tapes. Well, 
this really uh, disappointed me because I was certain that the president was spending his evenings cruising the State Department website, which is filled with thousands of Hillary Clinton emails that were um, released under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, mostly Freedom of Information Act requests uh, from Judicial Watch, a conservative group, that's Tom Fitton's group. Um, they seem to be the only Freedom of Information Act a request that I've noticed that the State Department is very eager to fill. I, I don't notice a similar swiftness, say, when my colleagues and I file Freedom of Information Act requests uh, for other things. Um, so um, here you had the president basically telling two cabinet members uh, to use the power of their office in the next three weeks to promote his reelection. And what I wrote was, this sounds a lot like what happens in countries run by people with names like Putin, Xi, and Erdogan. Now, Pompeo would say, no, 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 we're a nation you know, run by law and so forth. And if you listen to Pompeo carefully, um, he was sort of slow walking the president. The president said, I want everything declassified. I want everything unredacted. And Pompeo was saying, well, certainly we won't release anything that could release sources and methods or cause some kind of difficulty for the U.S. government. That's not what the president said. So frankly, I'm looking forward, David, and I'm sure Rosa is, uh, and I'm sure Corey is, to the unredacted version of the Mueller report, which presumably would fall within the president's desires here. Um, but I'm not certain we're getting that. No, no, we, we probably won't. But, and, by, and by the way, John Radcliffe over at the DNI We'll probably have a garage sale any day now and just offer up all the classified documents uh, of, of the Trump administration. But um, Rosa, what do you think the lasting consequences of this may be, um, uh, you know, quite apart from whatever we may think of what Pompeo um, uh, or Barr are doing or not doing? Mm. It's a good question, David. And I think that the lasting consequences do depend on the outcome of the election itself. You know, if, if Trump is soundly defeated, uh, I think it's entirely possible that this whole sorry episode, along with so many other sorry episodes of the last three and a half years, become examples of things we will try very hard never to do or permit again. You know, I think if Biden is able to take office uh, on Inauguration Day in 2021, we will see um, through executive orders and I hope through congressional action, um, much, much tougher legislation to prevent this kind of thing from happening. I think we will see authority figures repudiating this, uh, making important symbolic statements. Um, I think if Trump stays in office, however, that this will, this has already frankly become the new normal. I mean, I'm, I'm just gonna say it's gonna be the new normal that presidents do things like this. I think Trump has already done so much that uh, no president in the last century would have dreamt of doing. It would have been seen as inappropriate slash illegal. Um, so I wouldn't say this is a new normal, but I think if, 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 Trump, if Trump stays in office, we're just gonna see more and more of this as we continue our, our an unarrested slide towards political corruption, thuggery, oligarchy, authoritarianism, et cetera. Um, you know, the only thing I wanted to add, and I, I would love to get David and Corey's thoughts on this as well. Um, 
another example of misuse of executive power, misuse of authority. Um, we saw just today was, uh, I don't know if the rest of you've been tracking this, we saw that the Trump, Trump for president, Trump for re-election campaign has a new paid ad up that uses photos of General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint, Cha Joint Chiefs of Staff in uniform, sitting next to Secretary of Defense Esper and Donald Trump and Mike Pence in what looks like the Situation Room or, or possibly the tank at the Pentagon, but it's clearly a, a government room and uses that uh, in an ad uh, paid for by the Trump campaign, which also, you know, another, Millie had to apologize um, back in June when he was in uniform in a sort of a photo op with Donald Trump uh, in Lafayette Square after peaceful protesters were, were tear gassed to get them out of the square. Um, just, just the day before this ad uh, was revealed, Millie gave an interview with Steve Inskeep on NPR in which he, he talked about the military's long tradition of remaining outside of partisan politics. And then, you know, what an irony that, that the very day that that airs, we also see this ad with Mark Milley in uniform in a Trump campaign ad. You know, I certainly hope that Milley himself will state immediately and very clearly that this ad was used as picture without his permission, that he recognizes that this is a prohibit, legally prohibited to have his picture in uniform in a, in a camp, in a, ad paid for by a partisan campaign, uh, which gives the appearance that he would is endorsing that candidate uh, and ask the Trump campaign to take that ad down uh, until his photo is removed. But, but it's just, you know, it's another piece, you know, every day there's more just chipping away at the norms that say you don't use the powers of the executive branch for partisan ends. Um, uh, so I'd love to hear David and Corey's thoughts on that as well. Uh, Corey, what do you think are the lasting ramifications of this? I agree with everything Rosa just said. And since I focus on civil military relations, I especially notice the corrosion of the norms that have guided it. But what we also see, I think, in we see that in every other area of um, American governance which is that President Trump is corrupting the institutions, he's corrupting the norms, and if he's reelected, it will do lasting damage that it will be very hard to crawl back from. Well, it appears we've lost Corey in the mountains of West Virginia or wherever she was, um, but we're grateful for her point. And of course, we'll hear from her again next week. David, I'd like to flip the page a bit. Um, uh, to another story you've covered very closely. Uh, and it was big news once when, when foreign policy stuff made news and, and that's North Korea. There are two things that happened of note in North Korea um, uh, uh, over the past couple of days. One, uh, in a big uh, National Day parade, the North Koreans um, showed off a big new ICBM, which they bragged would be destabilizing, which puts the lie to um, a lot of the love notes between Trump and, and Kim Jong-un. But I thought just as interesting in a way was that Kim Jong-un did something in his speech associated with this whole festivity uh, that Trump has never done. He admitted he was wrong. He said he was having trouble as a leader. 
Uh, he was talking about problems the country has had um, internally as a result of sanctions, but also as a result of the economic impact of the COVID crisis, particularly on their trade with China. But he actually was reportedly um, reduced to tears um, in his apology. As an old Korea hand there, David, what, what do you make of all this? Let's break these down into some component parts. So start with the military parade, which is an annual event that the North Koreans have. And um, they ran these um, big missiles uh, down on, on what are called TELs. They're basically giant uh, transporters. And um, this, of course, sent everybody who um, watches over their various developments in missiles to examine the photographs and get into lengthy debates about whether they look like they were solid propellant or um, liquid propellant. And based on their size, could you estimate how far they might go and so forth and so on. And let's face it, you can run anything down a military parade. Uh, it looked big. It looked like you could merv it. Remember merving from our um, youth, David? This is a multiple independently reentry vehicles. That's right. Um, and that would that would pose a problem for American um, anti-missile uh, programs because we're basically uh, basing those on the thought that the North Koreans could launch one warhead at a time. And at the moment that you merge something, you make it a lot more difficult to, to go intercept. So that's all um, interesting fodder there, but the political implication of this, I think, was greater. He didn't want to go so far as to give Donald Trump the reason to once again threaten fire and fury. So he didn't do a test, and maybe he's not ready to do a test. But by doing the, the parade, he was able to say, hey, we met three times over the past two years. I didn't like what the United States did to follow up or not follow up out of any of it. And so, by the way, while we've all been talking and sending each other love letters, I've also been building. And the fact of the matter is that if you tally this up at the end of the four years and you say, what did Donald Trump's first threats and then diplomacy with North Korea accomplish? How many missiles got dismantled? Zero. In fact, new ones got built. How many weapons got dismantled? Zero. In fact, we think the arsenal is probably increased by about a third. So the only thing that has changed is that the, is that the testing has stopped. That's good. And the atmosphere seems slightly better. We're not threatening mutual Armageddon. That's good. But the fact of the matter is that the program steamed ahead just as it did in the Obama years and just as it did in the Bush years. And what's new here is that nothing changed in the way North Korea acted. The second part of this, which was Kim's apology, was interesting, too, because you can get out and say um, uh, that you're sorry, right? Because um, being a dictator means you can always say you're sorry because you don't have to worry about running against an opponent. So in some ways, it was sort of a, a, a gimme for for um, Kim, because he was able to say, I'm not infallible. I've made some mistakes. He can gather a little bit of sympathy. And if anybody uses that as an opportunity to depose him, he can have him executed again. Um, 
The third thing. The, yeah, right. The third thing that has come out of, of this, of a nuclear nature, though, I wrote about in the weekend papers, which is we were very fortunate. There was no nuclear crisis when Donald Trump was on um, uh, mood enhancing uh, or mood changing drugs uh, like the steroid he was on. But talk about another big risk we took in the national security sphere. He took these drugs whose combinations we don't understand, who in 30% of patients result in significant either euphoria, lack of judgment, um, uh, uh, self-aggrandizement, hard to imagine, but yes, drugs could make Donald Trump more self-aggrandizing and so forth. And at no point did he stop and say, you know, maybe during the time when my judgment is impaired, I should turn over control of our nuclear weapons to the vice president um, the way Reagan did when he went in for an operation, the way George W. Bush did twice when he went in for colonoscopies and would be, you know, put under. And that, you know, we were very lucky. Nothing happened during that time. But I'm not sure that the lesson we want to send there is that it's okay for any president to be under the influence of mood-changing drugs while they have sole control of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Rosa, you know, one of the things I've wanted to do for a while is to have a little class with Rosa Brooks called What's Wrong With Our Constitution? Um, because, you know, everybody treats it kind of like a sacred document. Um, uh, and, of course, in some ways it is. But if the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which was, you know, in, covered um, uh, the transition of authority from a, a, a president who was not up to the rigors of the job anymore, worked, Trump would be gone. It, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to work. All these protections that we have don't seem to work because, like so many other things in the Constitution, it depends on the good judgment, goodwill. Um, of the president, um, and Donald Trump doesn't care. Well, I mean, the 25th Amendment doesn't depend on the good judgment and goodwill of the president. It depends on the willingness of his cabinet to try to- uh, uh, No, you're right. I, I meant the, the, the point about passing on authority that David- Yeah, was. no, no. I mean, it's, it's- It can do both, Rosa, right? I mean, there's a section yeah. that says the president can send a letter and then revoke that authority, and that's what Bush and Reagan did. Very and then sensitive. there's a section. There's a section where, where the cabinet can do it, and a section where and, Congress could do it. And I think the, I mean, I mean, David, the only area in which I would quibble with your previous comments, I'm not sure that Trump on on experimental, untried drug treatment poses any greater dangers than Trump not on experimental, untried drug treatment. <laughs> Um, but that's a, that's just a small detail here, right? I mean, I mean, um, but but no, no question. I mean, under in a, in a normal administration, the fact that you even even just testing positive, you know, the fact that you've tested positive and and are quite ill with a with a disease that has killed, uh, uh, you know, nearly two hundred twenty five thousand Americans already would already be sufficient to put some contingency plans in place to just say, hey, we, well, one thing that we know about this disease is that people can seem fine and then they can get much worse very rapidly. So here's the letter signed. 
that sort of says, you know, if 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 my doc, you know, here, here are the circumstances in which Mike Pence, you're temporarily in charge. When you decide to take that experimental cocktail of, of, of drugs um, and steroids that affect mood and, and impulse control still further, you do it again. Uh, you know, and if the president doesn't do that, I mean, there's so many times during this administration where Trump's comments have just been, you, you know, so unhinged that it, it is stunning to me that, um, I, as you know, I, I continue to puzzle over why the GOP would rather have an unhinged guy who's not even really a right winger, just a totalitarian in his impulses, um, why they would rather have him in the White House than someone like Pence, who is not a totalitarian, is just a right winger, and is not batshit crazy. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that if I were an actual Republican, which which happily I am not, um, I would rather have Mike Pence in the White House than Donald Trump on on pretty much all issues. So that that remain. I've heard many theories about why this is the case. Um, I still put it down to political cowardice and cravenness on the part of uh, uh, GOP elected officials and cabinet members. Um, but but no, I, I, I think I think that the issue that you raise, I mean, I think there are two. There there are actually two separate issues. You know, here one is a kind of general governance authority. You know, and what are the circumstances in which a president should should say, "Hey, I'm not going to be able to be fully com concentrating on national affairs right now because of medical issues," and so I'm going to turn this over temporarily to my vice president so I can focus on my medical procedure getting better, whatever the case may be. And that's a sort of general thing. The other, more specific issue that you raise in your article, David, is a really important one. Um, which is whether we need to going forward, you know, if, if there is a, a democratically controlled Congress, uh, uh, think about changing the legislative uh, framework for nuclear weapons uh, use authorization, which, which as you note in your article, right now there are, it's, it's framed, it's, it's a Cold War era framework on the assumption that there might just be seconds to make a decision. You don't have time to loop anybody else in. But as many others who think about this as their sort of daily bread and butter have noted, there's also a, a very clear distinction that one could draw between offensive use and defensive use of nuclear weapons. Um, the current legal framework doesn't really draw that distinction. Um, and the, the, oh my God, we only have 17 seconds to make a decision argument may hold for defensive use of nuclear weapons, although even there, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's quite as true anymore. Uh, but it certainly doesn't hold true for first use, offensive use of nuclear weapons, where there isn't that time pressure, and you could certainly introduce additional safeguards um, by adding more people into the mix. So, I, so I, I as our friend Joe Cirincione wrote just the other day, uh, so too, you know, the president made a big show of having the so-called football, the briefcase with the codes, follow him to Walter Reed, um, and Joe pointed out that. In a world where so much firepower is on essentially invulnerable nuclear submarines, um, the football doesn't even make any sense. It's kind of an anachronism, in an, in and of itself. Uh, but you know, let's hope of, the football guy was working from home because that job <laughs> requires you to be really, really close to patient zero. <laughs> well, you know, that brings us to another point, which we can touch upon briefly, which is. Um, we, we might not know it if that guy got sick um, because this White House has systematically suppressed information about the president being sick. The president we know has told 
people around him uh, or encourage them not to admit that they were sick. He, his doctor doesn't tell us what's really going on. Uh, David, we had your colleague Mike Schmidt on a couple of times talking about his book and some other stuff the past couple of weeks. And you know, he, you know, one of the things that he talked about was the mysterious trip to Walter Reed in November of last year, where we have now learned, you know, the president demanded doctors sign NDAs. You know, this this sounds like Trumpian weirdness, but this has a big national security implication, not knowing how healthy the president is, how healthy the people around him are. Uh, it's it's big deal, isn't it, Dave? It certainly is. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people talk about medical privacy, but you give up a good deal of your medical privacy when you run for president of the United States, uh, just as you give up a lot of your tax privacy. And um, that's for very good reasons. American voters need to know to whom their president is in debt. And American president, American public needs to know what the medical condition of the president is. We still do not know when the last time was that the president tested uh, negative for coronavirus before his diagnosis, which is hampering our understanding of how long he might remain contagious. And we don't know what his most recent reading was, even though he says, I'm fine, I'm back on the campaign trail. Is invulnerable and and in, and a perfect physical specimen, a phrase that until now I have reserved only for my friend David Rothkoff. As do most people, but I I really am disappointed that Rosa was robbed of the opportunity to see Donald Trump in a Superman T-shirt. Oh no! Which he no. contemplated, as we know. I did read that. I saw that. I yeah. Mm, no. You know, it's I'll just I'll just throw in a little non sequitur here when I was out in Wyoming uh, this summer in the town where I was staying, there was a, a Trump campaign uh, sort of booth that had been set up on a street corner in town, you know, and it seemed to be selling Trump campaign literature and, you know, bumper stickers and stuff. And they had this giant poster of Trump on the front of this booth. It was a Photoshop poster of Trump in sort of a, a Rambo or diehard type pose, you know, a shirtless, shirtless man with Trump's head on his extremely muscular torso, you know, cradling uh, an AR-15 or some similar uh, assault rifle. And, you know, with a sort of manic expression on his face, you know, said Trump, uh, uh, Trump 2020. And obviously it was photoshopped uh, given Trump's, uh, given what we know of Trump's weight and general health. Um, I don't believe that he has such a, uh, a muscular torso, um, let me just say, but it was nonetheless, it was an extremely upsetting image to behold. Um, and it did make me think, the people who are voting for Donald Trump in Wyoming, do they actually think that's how he looks? I hope so. That was terrible. I bad saw, image. I saw a truck pa pa painted with one of these images of Trump and Jesus the other day. Oh my God. You know, where Jesus has got his hand on Trump's shoulder, like their team, um, which is... <laughs> Little, Jesus, little, Mark Milley, they all endorse Trump, apparently. It's amazing. The Taliban. We've, the Taliban, right? Osama, they've, yeah, right. They've stepped in and, and uh, uh, the KKK, of course, did months ago. 
Uh, well, look, um, I, you know, we've, we've covered some issues of, of, of foreign policy here. I do want to move the conversation um, uh, and have a, a, a few minutes to talk to David about his uh, documentary about based on his book, The Perfect Weapon. Um, and so, Rosa, you don't have to stick around for that because I know you're going to tune in to HBO on Friday when yeah. David's documentary appears. I don't, want, I don't want there to be any spoilers. If they're going to be spoilers, I'm out of here. Well, there, there is, it opens with uh, David's head photoshopped onto a muscular body. <laughs> um, and I'm in a Superman, uh, you know, yeah. super hacker t-shirt. Yeah, right. And I'm going to lead you to it. Yeah, and we'll, and every 10th caller to Deep State Radio will get a picture of David like that. Anyway. <laughs> All um, right. Bye, guys. I'll talk bye. to you soon. Bye, Rosa. Thank you very much. So, David, um, uh, congratulations, first of all, that Thanks. you've got uh, this documentary coming out on HBO. Uh, it's the only movie that's come out in America in the past year, practically, um, given... Give well, that wasn't it wasn't easy to. We were going to film David in as as you knew from our conversations in Russia, China, and across Europe, and of course, um, uh, events kind of got in our way. But uh, I think we produced uh, something. I, I, I hope you'll find of of great interest anyway. Well, you know, their James Bond movie was postponed. Yes, uh, yeah, leaving leaving room for leaving room for our documentary on cyber conflict. Well, then the sort of real life world of how, you know, global issues are resolved. Um, I think this would be a good moment for us to uh, play the trailer. And so uh, let's, uh, let's do that. And then it's a minute and a half long, and then we'll come back and, and, and talk about it. Cyber is the most inexpensive, highly destructive, highly deniable weapon. We don't see the war, but war is taking place. For decades, there was a lot of cyber theft, but everything would change in 2007. A piece of malware would be delivered into the Iranian nuclear program. The United States used a powerful cyber weapon in a very aggressive way. And others began to say, if the Americans can do it, so can we. Foreign cyber actors are targeting America's critical infrastructure networks. They said, oh, that's the way the game is played. Breaking into emails and making them public. I was like, I don't think this movie's coming out, guys. Some dictator cannot impose censorship in the United States. And then it ratcheted up a notch. Sowing chaos with disinformation. I don't think anybody knows it was Russia. People have no idea what's true, what's fact, what they can trust. We're still debating and questioning our democratic institutions. They're involved going after me on Facebook because Putin knows me and I know him and he doesn't want me to be sure. The volume of attack is escalating. Bad information is now spreading faster than the coronavirus itself. The sophistication is escalating. It attacked 155 countries in one day. Cyber will be a weapon of choice. Nations see this as an element of national power. This becomes a perfect weapon, one we're not prepared to defend against. I have to say, David, I've seen that trailer several times. I think it looks very cool. Um, it looks really important. Um, uh, and it looks like a great sort of uh, a bookend to the, to the book itself. 
what what do you hope the main takeaway is from people who who see this? Well, um, the main takeaway I think of the documentary is that we're still in the early stages of cyber conflict. I know we're all thinking to ourselves, okay, we had 2016 and we're now developing new defenses and we're trying to get through this election period uh, without significant interference either from foreign or domestic actors. But the real lesson of the past four years since 2016 is that the cyber world has gotten much more complex, that all of the actors involved, starting with Russia and China, but also the Iranians, the North Koreans, and so many others are learning from each other. The delivery systems are getting far more um, uh, sophisticated. Thus the concern for the next few weeks about ransomware, something we didn't even think about in 2016 because so many um, cities and states across America and small towns have been held up for ransomware by cyber criminals that were basically locking up the city's ability or the town's ability to respond to anything, parking tickets, filling bottles, collecting taxes. And the concern is what happens if that shifts over to the registration system? And that many of these cyber groups um, are basically rented for hire. And so if Vladimir Putin decides that's a good way to go create a little chaos on November 3rd or some other, uh, uh, some other power does, um, they're available. In fact, earlier uh, on Monday, uh, Microsoft announced that they had gone in with a federal court order to paralyze one of the most commonly used um, sets of tools for ransomware called TrickBot. And by the time they got in to go to try to dismantle it, what did they discover? Well, as we reported in the Times on Monday morning, they discovered that the NSA and US Cyber Command were in there ahead of them trying to do the same thing. We don't think any of these constitute a permanent solution. And I'm hoping that from the documentary, people will be able to trace the acceleration of this from the US attack on Iran in the Stuxnet or Olympic Games attacks uh, 10 years ago through to the acceleration that we're seeing today. So this documentary is appearing just a couple of weeks before an election. Um, and of course, cyber um, uh, conflict or cyber warfare takes many forms, some of them as uh, 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 straightforward, seemingly straightforward as, as disinformation campaigns to things like the ransomware that you've talked about to actually destructive campaigns, as in the case of Stuxnet or, or the North Korean attack on, on Sony. Um, how, how relevant or how central do you see these issues with regard to the campaign? And then my next question is going to be, um, how central do you think they're going to be to the sort of national security outlook of whomever the president is in January? Sure. So on the, the election, the campaigns, um, you know, we quote, um, we, you see on, on screen um, the, uh, the head of uh, cybersecurity for the Department of Homeland Security who's got uh, responsibility for this election, uh, Chris Krebs. And he makes a great distinction. So there are hacks of infrastructure and there are hacks of human minds, and they're very different challenges. 
So the hacks of infrastructure are what we were talking about before. Ransomware, getting into the registration system, making it possible that when David Rothkoff shows up to vote in New York, somebody says, well, you know, the system here has you deleted or says you moved to Arizona or something like that. That's a big concern because we knew that in 2016, the Russians got into the registration systems in just about all 50 states, but didn't do anything with that data. And the question is, is that different this time? Then there are hacks of the mind. And that can be um, what you see in the influence campaigns on uh, Facebook and Twitter, the new techniques in which uh, the Russians have decided oh, you know, we're going to get caught if we do this out of the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg again. So let's launch our attacks from servers inside the United States, where we know that the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command are prohibited by law from operating. Or let's just feed some information, amplify some information that is uttered by, say, the President of the United States and not work as hard thinking up new stuff. So as soon as the president comes out and says, the paper mailing of paper ballots to all voters is going to assure that this is a fraudulent election, this whole thing is rigged, they just amplify what he's saying. Well, that's a harder issue for Facebook or others to take down because what the president's saying, even if you don't believe it, and I don't believe it, um, is within the realm of protected political speech. So we're seeing a real evolution this time in the adversary's attacks, and we are seeing an evolution in the American ability to push back. But you've heard me make this analogy before, David. The way to think about this is we're kind of where air power was at the end of World War I. You know, there were skirmishes in Air Force One. There were, there were uh, skirmishes in World War I, uh, you know, we had the Red uh, Baron and all that. You remember, you covered that stuff. Um, and uh, those air skirmishes were not decisive in World War I. The, the air power was not a strategic weapon, the way cyber today is not a strategic weapon. But 25 or 30 years later, come World War II, it sure was strategic, and it sure did decide the outcome. Of, of the war. Air power made all the difference in World War II. And you have to think of our cyber capability right now as right around 1919 or 1920. Well, in fact, um, things are moving rapidly and um, we are creating conditions whereby cyber um, can be strategic not simply because people are learning more about how to hack into systems, not simply because of the emergence of the internet of things, but because increasingly conflict is going to depend on um, high technology, artificial intelligence, machine to machine communication, uh, and so forth, which will mean that having strong cyber capabilities will be the one way or the best way to defeat swarms of drones, uh, AI managed attacks, uh, et cetera. In other words, the entire playing field, un unlike with air power where that became one component of it, we're moving to warfare in which the entire playing field of militaries, 
has a big tech component that's hackable um, and the entire playing field of economies does as well. So it seems like the stakes are higher strategically. Would you say that's fair? They certainly are. And that's one of my worries about the way we have gone about um, bolstering the defense budget. You know, the president gets out and says, I've given, you know, more money, we've got a bigger defense. And then whenever he talks about it, he talks about how many ships are in the Navy and how many ships will be in the Navy going forward. Well, it's nice to rebuild naval ships, but you know, would you build new battleships today? How about new aircraft carriers? Probably not. And you know, one of the most interesting congressional reports that nobody read came out about a week ago uh, it was a bipartisan report that Jim Hines and Seth Moulton worked on that basically made the argument that we're not going to start investing enough in everything that you just described, starting with artificial intelligence, until we start paying for it by killing off legacy systems. And legacy systems are very hard to kill off for all the reasons we all know. You know, you build airplane parts and key congressional districts to make sure that program never gets killed off. And if you say, well, I'm going to kill the Warthog, which is a, a aircraft that many secretaries of defense have tried to get rid of, so that I can pay for more AI, well, that's not a one-for-one one for the workers who are working on it, because it's a different set of people who are working on artificial intelligence than who are welding together Warthogs. And our system has gotten so sclerotic that our biggest fear right now is that while the Chinese have not out, outpaced us yet, they're well on the way to doing that because they don't have that legacy system to overcome. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, the related issues like no one ever got to be, you know, chief of staff of any branch of our armed services by being a geek. Yep. Um, you know, you got you get you get to do that by driving uh, um, submarines or running a carrier battle group or 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 flying an airplane. And That's right. So all the incentives are are wrong. Uh, but but do, do you come to the conclusion that even the structure of our national security is wrong? Because, for example, the NSA. Um, which is not seen as you know one of the four branches of the military, is the place where most of this capability lies, and the the military scrambling to catch up. But um, they it's it's not central to their existence, if you know what I mean. So our, well, the good the good news is U.S. Cyber Command has come along and is now its own command, the way um, you know. Uh, Northern Command exists, or Central Command to run our our activities in uh, the Middle East and and so forth. So they are building in strength. What worries me on the coordination is this: we are leaving the defense of our elections, for example, domestically, to the Department of Homeland Security. When they see criminal activity, they call in the FBI. We are leaving the uh, private industry to go run their own operations, including the one I just described that Microsoft did taking down an international botnet, which they can do because it was exploiting Microsoft systems and they got federal court approval um, to go defend their systems. But it's the NSA and Cyber Command that are running the offensive part. 
So supposing in traditional war, you said, I'm going to have completely different organizations do offense and defense. I'm going to do my missile defense with a civilian organization, and I'm going to do my offense with the military. You'd look at this and say, this is crazy. You have to integrate these. And in fact, when I spoke to people at Microsoft for the story we ran this morning on this, they had no idea who had been in ahead of them to dismantle part of TrickBot. They suspected it might be Cyber Command, but they didn't know. And Cyber Command wasn't particularly coordinated with what Microsoft was going to go off and do. And this is all because it fits within our traditional conception of how you go off and deal with a short of war conflict. And that conception is wildly outdated. And I think that comes across really well in what John Maggio, the director of, uh, of The Perfect Weapon, did in, in trying to translate a 300-page book down to an hour and a half long HBO documentary. Um, well, let me ask you one last question on this because it's obviously relevant in the context of, a, of, of an election. You and I have talked many, many times over um, many years about the fact that the policy community is not trained in this, doesn't really get it. Um, and, you know, we, we're likely to have a new administration. Now, they're going to have a lot on their hands, COVID, economic recovery, restoring America's leadership overseas, uh, and so forth. But the United States is going to keep chunking out $700 billion a year for defense. Um, and it sounds, listening to you again, like, we ought to be rethinking our priorities. How well do you think the Democrats that you know, the policy people around a guy like Biden, get it? How well do you think they understand this? Well, I think some of them do. Uh, you know, you think about people like Jake Sullivan, who's a big advisor to uh, Biden, but has uh, taught on many of these cyber issues and dealt with many of them at the State Department. Uh, Tony Blinken, the Deputy Secretary of State during the Obama era, who's been Biden's long-term um, uh, foreign policy and national security advisor. But um, I'm not sure how well uh, former Vice President Biden himself understands. These are not the issues he dealt with when he was running the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He did sit in the Situation Room during the Olympic Games attacks, and uh, I've written about uh, his role in the uh, in the decision to pull the plug uh, on Olympic Games after uh, it, it came out and became public. Um, so he's not unfamiliar with these. But the question is, can you move your mindset and how quickly can you move the, move the mindset of the bureaucracy to understand that this isn't some like sideshow going on while you're doing traditional national security planning. This is the main show. And it's the primary way that countries are going about undercutting and attacking each other because no one wants to get into a direct military conflict with the United States. And in fact, they've been calibrating their attacks against the U.S. to keep them just below the level of armed conflict so that they're not visited by a bunch of B-2s. And in the documentary, we take you through many of those key hacks. The North Koreans going after Sony, Sony Pictures, betting correctly that Barack Obama was not going to risk a 
open conflict with North Korea just because it hacked Sony. But if North Korea, as you and I have discussed before, had stuck explosives underneath the Sony computer system, uh, computer center, and blown it sky high, and you saw it burning by the Hollywood sign, you know that somebody would have had to, well, some president would have had to what, announce a kinetic attack against North Korea. The Iranians went after the Sands Casino and U.S. Um, uh, banks and financial uh, institutions, and again, very little happened to them. The Russians didn't pay much of a price for a really cheap attack on the election uh, systems, but also uh, against um, the Defense Department, the State Department, the White House email system. The Chinese paid very little price for the Office of Personnel Management. So we don't have the deterrent system worked out yet. And that, I hope, comes through to people who watch the documentary, um, even though in a documentary, you can't go deeply into the kind of policy issues that we might in deep state radio. I think it tees up every one of those issues. Well, you know, people who've been listening to us on this podcast and his predecessor for the past five years, joking with each other um, uh, about everything, um, uh, might find it a little bit uh, dis, dis, uh, 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 uh surprising perhaps to to hear me say what I'm about to say but you know I have you know of course have a huge amount of respect for you but I really think that the work that you personally have done in the area of cyber um, in the area of raising awareness of these issues as well as ferreting out the truth about what's going on has been vitally important and that we are at one of those moments in history in which a few voices are saying, you need to change direction. And you've been one of those voices. I think The Perfect Weapon was a great book and is essential reading to anybody who's going into national security, because as you and I have also discussed, if you are going into national security, there is a tech component. I don't care what component element it is, there is a tech component. Uh, and this documentary sounds like a great way for people to get into this issue and understand what um, what you're doing. Um, uh, I, I'm sure you will continue to do this because I, I think we're a long way from having the penny drop on a, on a national basis. Um, but I do want to say that, you know, everybody who's listening to Deep State Radio understands this well. Um, you're a central voice on a central issue. Um, and I personally look forward to seeing the documentary. Um, and, I, and I am sure that everybody else out there who's been following you with us together will as well. So congratulations on it. Um, uh, keep it up. We look forward to having you back again, obviously um, uh, soon and many times as we go into the election and after, and uh, hopefully we'll return to these issues in some depth, but thanks David, congratulations. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to Rosa uh, and Corey, however briefly for joining us at the beginning. Uh, we'll be back again later in the week with our usual array of um, regular and specially scheduled podcasts as we come up to the election, now three weeks away. Um, and if you want any information on what we're doing there, go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, where you'll find uh, all sorts of information about us. And if you feel so inclined, think this is of some value, go click on membership and become a member. Thanks everybody, stay healthy. Thank you, David, congratulations. Thanks very much, David, and uh, enjoy the documentary.